0: Augustine of Hippo, or St. Augustine, became the bishop of Hippo Regius, which is now uh, in modern Algeria, Africa, in 396 AD. He is, uh, Augustine is, of course, considered to be one of the greatest theologians and philosophers in history. He preached in the great Basilica of Carthage and produced many prodigious writings. Most famous among his writings are... Uh, His Confessions, uh, and what has been called his magnum opus, The City of God. He wrote City of God toward the end of his life, and some 1,600 years later, City of God still speaks poignantly uh, and perhaps now more than ever. Uh, Augustine and his congregation lived at the edge of the Roman Empire geographically and toward the end of the Roman Empire chronologically. And this influenced uh, what Augustine spoke about, preached about, and wrote about, particularly in the city of God. Rome was supposed to be the eternal city, but the empire was collapsing. In 410 AD, Rome was sacked by the Visigoths. It was unthinkable that after hundreds of years of domination that Rome would be pillaged by barbarians, but it was. And some of the Roman pagans were blaming the Christians for discerning the Roman gods and for preaching a religion of peace. It was in this context that Augustine wrote City of God both to argue, uh, to prove Christianity, and also to argue against the pagans. But even more, he wanted to show God was at work through history, in spite of the rise and fall of empires, and that though Rome was not an eternal city, there was, in fact, an eternal city, the city of God. And Augustine said that Christians were eternal citizens of that eternal city. Peter Brown, in his uh, highly acclaimed biography of Augustine, wrote this In the years after 410, when Rome was uh, attacked by the Visigoths, the Christians who flocked into the great basilica of Carthage were uncertain of themselves. They had boasted of the Christian era, and now it had coincided with unparalleled disasters. After a generation of success, they found themselves unpopular, Augustine gave them a sense of identity. He told them where they belonged, to what they must be loyal. In a series of great sermons, which became the city of God, he spoke to confused men lingering in a hundred ways on the fringe of paganism with pagan relatives, pagan neighbors, loyalties to their city, and so on. He told them that they were a distinct people, citizens of Jerusalem, O God's own people, O body of Christ, Augustine believed that since the fall of Adam, all of human history, everyone who has ever lived has been divided into two camps, God's city and the city of this world, those who worship and please God and those who don't. Everyone, Augustine believed, has either an earthly orientation or a heavenly orientation. And he said that we are primarily Citizens, if we're followers of Jesus, of the city of God, not the city of man. Peter Brown said that what was at stake in the city of God in Augustine's sermons was the capacity of people to long for something different, to examine the nature of their relationship with their immediate environment. Above all, to establish their identity by refusing to be engulfed in the unthinking habits of their fellows. And part of what Augustine said is that we are, those who believe in and follow Jesus, resident aliens. We are in this world. We are not of this world. We care about this world, but it's not of first importance. Our focus is on the world that is eternal. See, Scripture teaches that those of us who follow Jesus, those of us who believe in Jesus, have been rescued from the city of man and have been brought into the city of God, and that consequently our identity is found in Christ and our citizenship is in God's kingdom. Jesus is the king of this city, of this kingdom, and he is the king of our lives. Colossians chapter 1, verse 12 says that, The Father has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves. Paul wrote to the Philippians and said, Above all, you must live as citizens of heaven, conducting yourself in a manner worthy of the good news about Christ We are citizens of heaven where the Lord Jesus Christ lives, a part of what we must understand. And frankly, I'm talking a little fast because I have a lot to say and went way over time in the first service and and really building towards uh, things that are very uh, germane to our lives today and the issues that we confront in society today, part of what we must be aware of is that earthly kingdoms come and go, but the rule of God existed before creation and certainly before the creation of any particular nation, and his kingdom will go on forever. The kingdom of God is indestructible. Isaiah prophesied about the coming Messiah, Jesus, and part of what he said is, Isaiah 9-7, of the greatness of his government, Jesus, of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever forever. It is imperative that we do not get confused about what is most important. We must see our lives and all temporary reality in light of eternal reality. See, it's easy to get confused about the importance of temporal kingdoms. Even the disciples of Jesus had to be reminded about what was most important. You might remember how that just before Jesus ascended, they had a discussion about the nature of his kingdom. Acts 1 verse 3, after his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. They gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel and to the ends of the earth. Are you gonna establish your kingdom? Not in the way you think, he said. I am going to establish my kingdom in your heart and in your midst through my spirit, and my kingdom is gonna advance the good news about me. You know, they wanted to overthrow Rome. Jesus wanted to save Romans. This is an incredibly important perspective. It wasn't that issues of government weren't important. It just was that they were secondary. Jesus did not come to overthrow governments. He did not come to set up new governments. He came to establish his kingdom through his spirit in the hearts of those who believe in him and to do something bigger than any government, every one of which is temporary. See, I think Americans, in particular, citizens of the United States, and by the way, I'm an American, I'm a citizen of this country, I love the USA. When Lee Greenwald or whatever his name sings, I love the USA, I get teary-eyed, all that, all right? So don't misunderstand me when I say this. There's not any other place I want to be. I'm thankful to be a citizen of the United States. However, I think Americans in particular should take special note of the difference between eternal kingdoms and temporary kingdoms. And we should remember that though our tendency is to think that world history revolves around us, it doesn't. We are fundamentally a narcissistic people. And we think, some people even try to find, you know, the, 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 thinks that eschatology and the way the world's going to end and all of that, they try desperately to find us in the Bible. Good luck with that. All right? Because we're not in it, at least not in any explicit way. I know I just offended some people. I'm sorry. The fact is the United States is 244 years old, and the church is 2,000 years old. The fact is that someday, as every great nation or kingdom has, the United States will n- not be what it's always been in terms of our dominance. I'm all for us continuing to be that for a long time. But I'm, I'm not, but I might root for that, but I'm just telling you the reality of it. The United States is temporary. The kingdom of God will go on forever and it's important that we keep this in mind now the kingdom of god is present now in and through the church that's how the kingdom of god is manifest in the world today the the great uh uh, scholar Scott McKnight, who we uh, all of our pastoral team has been reading along with me, his commentary on Colossians—it's just marvelous. He wrote, "How is the kingdom present? It is my contention that the presentness of the kingdom, or the inaugurated reality of the kingdom, must be located in the church." Now see, this is part of why how we relate to the church and advance the gospel of the kingdom through the church is so important. See, some folks think that the most important thing happening in the world is who gets elected President of the United States in 2020. But I contend that the most important thing happening in the world is what is happening in and through the church which is more than American reality. It's what's happening in and through the church on every continent in the lives of a billion people on this planet. That is literally infinitely more important than one four-year election cycle in one nation, a relatively new one in history. The most important election is not the election of the President of the United States, the most important election is your election to the body of Christ. And if you're not familiar with the term election in that regard, that's a term that's used to describe our salvation. God the Father elected you to be a part of his body and that, my friend, is the most important election that you or I will ever participate in. I might preach today, by the way, just as a... So with this in mind, the church is the manifestation of the city of God on this planet. The church is primary. The church is, hear this word, essential. The church is eternal. The church is indestructible. I'm not talking about the life Christian church, though we, you know, we relate to the global church in a local body. I'm talking about the church, the church that Jesus inaugurated 2,000 years ago. Now, we're getting ready to turn our attention again to Colossians, to, to take on a, a, a section of Colossians as we've been doing in recent weeks, the letter that the Apostle Paul wrote uh, along with Timothy to a, to the church in Colossae in the first century. But, but first, let me just offer this, that part of the overall construct of Colossians is this. Now, don't fall off your seat when you hear these words. It's just in order for theologians to stay in business, they have to use words that are initially incomprehensible, all right? But they all describe relatively simple things. So um, here's the overall construct of Colossians is this. Christology leads to soteriology, leads to ecclesiology. Now you do get credit for this class, Christology leads to soteriology, leads to ecclesiology. Christology is about who Jesus is. It's the theology of Christ. And in Colossians, as we've talked in recent weeks, Paul tells us that Jesus is the Lord of the cosmos, that he existed before everything, that he caused everything, that he holds everything together. Soteriology is the theology of salvation. And Paul moves in Colossians from Christology, who Jesus is, to say, essentially, because of who Jesus is, he's the only one who could show up and save us. Because of who Jesus is, not just a man but the Lord of the cosmos, it was only by him becoming a human being and only by his life, death, resurrection, and ascension that we could be saved from life to death, that we could be reconciled to God. And then he moves from soteriology in Colossians to ecclesiology, which is where we're going the next two weeks. Ecclesiology is the the theology of the church. This is where Paul essentially says, now the church is that new community where this new life that you found in Christ is lived out. The church is the place where Jesus is over all and in all and through all. The church is the place where Jesus, the Lord of the cosmos, is manifest on this planet. Now, having said that, let's pick up where we left off in Colossians a couple of weeks ago, and I'll slow down just a little bit uh, as I start to get into the things that I want to say today. I'm going to talk Scripture here for uh, uh, quite a little bit, and then I'm going to come to practical implications in today's world, okay? Everybody fine? Yes? So hard behind the mask. You know, the 815 people, they're kind of sleepy and, you know, I don't know if people left happy or sad or mad or uh, I suspect everything's okay, but you'll tell me in a little while. So a major theme in Paul's letter to the Colossians was that the church is so important to what God's doing through history and in the cosmos that protecting the unity of the church In particular, in Paul's writing to the Colossians, the unity of that local church in Colossians and, by implication, local churches uh, all all together and fulfilling the mission of the church is paramount. It's a really long sentence on the screen behind me. It needs a comma somewhere. Uh, Forgive my uh, lack of uh, exact, what, grammar? I don't even know what to call it. Let's pick up now with that in mind in Colossians chapter 3, where Paul begins to make this shift to ecclesiology, to the theology of the church, in particular talking about the unity of the church. Colossians 3, 1 through 4, since then you have been raised with Christ. Now, he's, he's now going to sum up a lot of what he said in the first two chapters of Colossians. And... Um, and make, offer some implications of it. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. See, Paul has told us in Colossians that if we've, in repentance, died to our sins, and in faith, believed in Jesus, and if we've been baptized, that we have been raised, we have been raised with Christ, and as we're told in Ephesians, we sit with Him in heavenly places. Guys, this is an important thing. I don't have time, much time to spend with this, but, but when, when we talk about you being residents, a, resident aliens, it's important to note that you're sitting here on a seat in West Orange, New Jersey, but in the world of spirit, the world of ultimate reality, the world that is eternal, you are sitting with Christ in heavenly places. You are a citizen of that world of spirit, the city of God, the eternal, indestructible kingdom. You live in both worlds. And part of what we're to do is we're to bring the realities of that kingdom into play, into the realities of everyday life. What did Jesus teach us to pray? Your kingdom come, your will be done in earth as it is in heaven. We wanna bring that reality into play in this world. But, But just think about this. There is a spiritual reality. What does he say here? He says, you've been raised with Christ. Therefore, set your heart on things Above. And then he goes on. For set your, set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. For you died to your sins and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. Now he's talking about identity. You are now hidden with Christ in God. This is your identity. And when Christ who is your life appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. In other words, uh, and again, you, you, all of this has to be a brief treatment of a text that, you know, volumes have been written about these few verses. But, but this spirit reality I just described to you that cannot presently be seen will be seen when at the second coming of Christ, when what is real in that world is made apparent in this world, all right? And then he picks up now Colossians 3, verse 5. We'll pick up at Colossians 3, verse 5, where he says, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. Part of the reality of our Christian walk is that though we died to sins, we have to keep putting our sins to death. So that's sanctification. That's the process of becoming in reality who we are in 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 the mind of God or in in the spirit uh, uh, realm. And so, though we've died to our sins, we have to keep killing them. And then he mentions here six sins of desire. This is commonly what how this is talked about. Six sins of desire. And these are pretty common to to the to to the, to the sins that are discussed in the lives of individuals throughout the New Testament and scripture itself, all, all old and new testament. He mentioned six things. Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. Part of what should give us hope is that someday God in his love and and uh, uh, his, his mercy is gonna undo evil and make sure that all remains is good. And this is actually something that should give us hope. But he says, listen, put to death these things that aren't gonna survive when God makes everything right. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived. So I'm not going to spend any more time on that. It's pretty uh, uh, obvious on its face what those sins of desire are about, because now then he makes this shift to ecclesiology or to the doctrine of the church or to the way that we should be relating to one another in the church. And he now moves from six sins of desire to six sins of disunity, When he then says, essentially, not only do you need to not do those things as a person, but now, verse 8, you must also rid yourself of all such things as these. And the focus of the words you're about to hear is a list of sins that cause disunity in the church. The Apostle Paul's concern now are speech sins, speech sins, That destroy the unity of the fellowship. And here are the things he mentions. Anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of God. I'm going to come back to the six sins of disunity, but let me just treat verse the last part of verse 9 and verse 10 together. He tells them that they've put off their old self and they've put on their new self. Self could also be translated their identity. He's saying you put off your old identity and you have put on your new identity. And as you look at the entire context, he's not saying that this is true only as an individual, that you have put off your identity uh, as someone who didn't follow Jesus, and now your life is hidden with Christ in God, but you also have put off the identity of your people group. And you'll see that he's about to nail this here in a second. You need to watch for this. You've put off your primary identity being Jew or Gentile, for instance, and you've put on a new identity and you're now being renewed by the Holy Spirit to actually live in this new person you are every day. And then he he makes it clear what he's talking about. He gets specific. He says, verse 11, here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Just real quickly, he talks about anger and rage, which can't, accomplish God's will. He talks about malice, which has to do with a mean-spirited or vicious attitude or disposition towards other people. He talks about slander. It's actually translated from the Greek blasphemia, which is almost always used towards God, where someone blasphemes God. But here he says that people in the congregation who were bringing disunity were blaspheming each other. Slander. He then speaks about filthy language from their mouths, which is a general expression for uncultured, vulgar, and obscene language directed at others. And then he prohibits lying, which describes falseness and deceit in communication. These people were lying, according to the original text, to each other or it appears maybe even against each other. And Paul says you have to rid yourself of those things. You have a new identity. And here, there is nothing that can bring us division. You no longer are seeing yourself as Gentile or Jew. Let's look now at uh, Colossians 3.11. This, is, this will be central to what I teach about the next couple of weeks, Lord willing. There is no Gentile or Jew, and, and, and it's important just very quickly to remember most of the early Christians were Jewish. Um, now Gentiles are coming into the church. There is an inherent conflict between many of the, of the observant Jews who felt like that a Gentile Christian needed to keep the law of Moses in order to be a part of Christ, and there also is this circumcised or uncircumcised thing, which is about the fact, it seems crazy to talk about in today's world, but it was a very serious front page news item in that day. Uh, uh, Jews believed that in order to be in the covenant of Abraham, that a male had to be circumcised, and that uh, now they were saying that these Gentile believers who are becoming a part of the church need to be circumcised as well, and Paul debunks all of that. He says, no, the Our identity is in Christ through our dying to sin, our faith in Jesus, our being baptized, being raised to new life. We are now new people, and we no longer think of ourselves in these groups of Jew and Gentile, circumcised or uncircumcised. Then he mentions barbarians. I just like that word. I'll probably say that word a lot in coming weeks. Barbarian was a common slur that was used by the Greeks who saw themselves as cultured and and they use this term for people who didn't speak Greek. And, and it also could be translated foreigner. It also, in, in modern parlance, could mean the other. So 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 there were people there who were calling some members of the church barbarians because they thought they were basically other foreign, uncultured, and then he uses this term Scythians. Scythians, like barbarians, are mocked in Greek poetry. It was a stereotype. The Jewish historian Josephus said that the Scythians delight in murdering people and are little better than wild beasts. This described people from a particular geographical region, which was those who lived north of the Black Sea, which is now modern southern Russia and is associated with savagery. So you have to hear this now. Paul says... Quit showing malice towards each other, and so on. There's no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free. Now, this is an important thing. I'm actually gonna do a message on this Later, by God's grace in November, this idea of slavery in the first century and how it relates to the church, you have to see here that there's something incredible going on that I don't have time to get into. First of all, slavery in the first century was of a different sort than the race-based slavery that we're familiar with in recent years. But nonetheless, there was still a a huge number of the population that was under Roman dominance were enslaved peoples. And And part of the story of Colossians is that the letter to the Colossians that's being carried from Paul, who's in prison, probably in Ephesus, is being carried by several guys. And one of those guys, uh, and by the way, it seems I say guys, that the, the, the house they were meeting in appeared to be the house of a prosperous woman. But nonetheless, this letter is carried by a group of guys that includes a man named Onesimus, Onesimus, many of you will remember, was a slave who would run away from his master Philemon. He had gone to Paul, he'd become a believer, and Paul sends a letter to Philemon along with this letter to the Colossians by way of Onesimus, the freed slave. Are you tracking with me? A lot to track with. By the way, I'm gonna go over time by about 10 minutes this morning. I just wanna go ahead and let you know that. You feel free to go if you'd like, I understand. All right, now, don't go to sleep if you're watching online, please. So Onesimus, this freed slave, is carrying this letter where Paul says there's no slave or free, and Philemon, it appears, is a member of the church in Colossians. So here Philemon is who Onesimus has run away with, and Paul calls Onesimus to freed slave. His brother, he challenges Philemon on the whole issue of slavery, and he says in this letter to the Colossians, he says, there is no difference between slave or free, not in the body of Christ. And he finishes here by saying, but Christ is all and is in all this is an amazing thing. Remember now there are these Jewish mystics who are in the church in Colossians. They're trying to cause division. They're saying that that Gentile believers and Jewish believers had to follow the law of Moses to the letter of the law in order to be a part of the body of Christ. They're exalting in their super spiritual experiences and claiming to have special knowledge that other people in the body don't have. When it's all said and done there were people in the church. I don't know if they were saying it to each other or if they were just posting things on Instagram that basically said, barbarians, Scythians, Jews said to Gentiles, whatever they said, and Gentiles, said, you get the point. There was There was disunity that was going on in the local church. And Paul said, there is not going to be any of that here because there's something bigger going on than your identity as with one of these groups of people. Now, what would... It say today, I think it would say, I think Paul would say, there is no black or white or Latino or Asian. There are no Republicans or Democrats. There are no Jew or Gentiles. There's no rich or poor. There are no American people and Chinese people. Because we are all one in Christ. Now, of course, that doesn't mean that there aren't Democrats and Republicans. It's just what we have to understand is we have to remember what's primary and we have to remember what's secondary. And what's primary is our identity together in Christ to where there are no others, there are no foreigners, there is no somebody else, there are no barbarians. There are only brothers and sisters. And then he turns into the positive part, which I hope to take on next week. I'll just read it. I won't comment on it because then we pick up at Colossians 3.12 where he tells them there how they should act towards each other. Therefore, listen how beautiful this is, guys. Therefore is God's chosen people. Holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, which is normal and natural, those things happen. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Since as members of one body, you were called to peace and be thankful thankful let the message of christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms hymns and songs from carl brister and songs from the spirit singing to god with gratitude in your hearts and whatever you do in word or deed do it all in the name of the lord jesus giving thanks to God the Father through him. That's what unity looks like. Okay. Let's talk now with all that six hours of stuff in in our mind. I think it's really important that I approach current events from the teachings of history of Christianity as they've been understood for 2,000 years I've always been thrilled with the amazing unity that we've had at the Live Christian Church for 29 years, 29 years this month. 29 years, I was elected pastor of this church, October 27, 1991, so I think October 27 is next week or the next week, somewhere like that. 29 years, we've had this amazing unity, particularly in light of our amazing diversity at the same time, I'm always proactively concerned about any potential sins of disunity. And particularly in today's world, I'm troubled, as I'm sure most of you are, by the polarization in our nation, especially the divisions that are manifest in our politics, and especially how how wide and deep the divide has become in recent years, and how much all of us feel it in the atmosphere around us all the time, especially as we're a couple of weeks from a national election. I'm concerned about the nation, but guys, I am more concerned about something more important than the nation. I am concerned about how all of this affects the church. I'm concerned about it on a global level, a national level, and certainly as the pastor of this congregation, I'm concerned about it on a local level, and I'm going to speak about it some the next couple of weeks. The divisiveness of our politics is pervasive. So I'll poll this week that 76% of single people believe that it is important or essential for their partners to share their political beliefs, Three years ago, the same poll had 49% of people responding the same way. There is an escalation of, of people identifying their primary identity being their political ideas that it's fine, politics are important, government's important, uh, the city of man, we live in it, we're supposed to contribute to it, we're supposed to bring the kingdom of God to it and all of that, but it is not primary. It is not how we should see our primary identity nor especially decide who we're going to be in relationship with in the body of Christ. The last election caught me by surprise. As usual, well, I decided many, many years ago that I was going to suppress my own political views, and I have political views, I am a strongly opinionated human being. Less so as I get older, frankly, but nonetheless, I have political views I feel very strongly about. I decided to not share them and to do my best not to leak them many years ago because I decided that who we are in all of our diversity is more important than me having a feel good because I tell everybody what I think. That doesn't mean everybody else needs to do the same thing. I'm saying I'm doing that as the pastor of a local church valuing something more so For many years, as we've headed towards an election, I've basically just said, I hope you vote. I hope you think Christianly about who you're going to vote for. God bless you. Last election caught me by surprise. The aftermath of the election was shocking to me. We had people, I'm embarrassed to say this. These weren't core people. But we had people who left the Life Christian Church because they didn't want to be in a church with people who voted differently than they did. Barbarians, they say. (laughs) Scythians. Republicans. (laughs) Democrats. Clearly, folks who leave a church because they don't want to be in fellowship with someone who votes differently than them have, frankly, no understanding of what it means to be in Christ And for Christ to be over all, in all, and through all. (laughs) At least, at least a couple of people, again, not core people, but a couple of people walked out the Sunday after the election because we prayed both for President Obama, who was our president at that time, and for President-elect Trump, who had just been elected president. To which I say, if you're a Christian, you should be outraged if we don't pray for our elected leaders. Scripture commands us to pray for those in authority. First Timothy chapter two, verse one, I urge then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people. Even people you don't like. Even people who don't deserve it, perhaps. For kings and all those in authority that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God, our savior, who here's the big picture of all of this, guys. You have to remember who wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. Hey, Jesus, are you going to overthrow Rome? No, I want to save Romans. You get, you get this idea here. That's the bigger picture of how we think about the governments of this world. Listen, Jesus told us even to pray for our enemies. So if someone gets elected who you don't who is you consider to be a political enemy, you are under more obligation to pray for them. We are Christians. I assure you that if Donald Trump wins re-election, The following Sunday, we're going to stand here and we're going to pray for him. And if Vice President Joe Biden wins the election, we're going to stand here and we're going to pray for him. Keep your minds on the greater reality. We as the church have an important role to play. It's important. Maybe you are involved in politics in some way. Good. Bring your belief system to your to, to the way that you govern, okay? Just just still be a Christian in that world. But, but, and then all of us, we have a responsibility to vote. Hard as it is, perhaps, for us to even make a choice sometimes, we have a responsibility to vote, but we have a more important responsibility. That more important responsibility is to pray. It's to pray, it's to share the gospel, it's to keep the main thing as the main thing as followers of Jesus. Now this is where I wanna land uh, today, I'm not landing yet, but I'm circling the airport now. (laughs) This is what I wanna pick up with next week. I wanna encourage you, and this is difficult guys, in our political climate it's difficult, but we don't get to act like the pagans. I want to encourage you to believe the best about a brother or sister who holds different political opinions than you. Some of us are so convinced of the moral rightness and superiority of our positions that we cannot even countenance another's views. If they feel differently than we do or support someone differently than we do, they are barbarians, unworthy of salvation. What I've learned is that some people of sincere Christian faith make different decisions about city of man issues with the same city of God motivation. In other words, they're trying to do the right thing. Now, when I say this, my assumption is that as followers of Jesus, that each of us think and vote Christianly. If we're just arriving to our decisions about electoral politics, just like everybody else in the country does, then we need, to, we need to be reminded that as Christ followers, everything in our lives must be shaped by our allegiance to Jesus and his word. But what I've discovered is even when people are doing their best to understand issues from a Christian perspective, they may come to different conclusions than someone else who's trying to understand those same issues from a Christian perspective and sometimes it has to do with the matter of what moral issue they choose to emphasize next week i'm going to dig i'm going to do take a risk unlike any i've ever taken in 29 years and i'm going to talk about two issues that pe- that i personally feel passionately about that if you emphasize one of them, if that's the t- main thing in your mind when it comes time to vote, you're gonna vote one way, and if you emphasize the other one, you're gonna emphasize the other way, and it's very possible that two believers in the same life group, in the same, uh, 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 life, on the same life team, in the same church, may both try to approach things from a Christian perspective and vote for different people. An interesting approach to this is a book that I want to recommend to all of you. It's a book called Compassion and Conviction. It's written by three leaders of the AND campaign. The AND campaign is about promoting a reconciliatory prescription for a political environment infested by discord, animus, and extremism. These three guys, Chris Butler, who's a pastor and community organizer in Chicago, Justin Gibney, who's an attorney and, and, and who served as a delegate for the Democratic National Convention, and Michael Ware, who's the author of Reclaiming Hope, Lessons Learned in the Obama White House about the future of America, try as believers to approach the political divide in our country, from a scriptural perspective, and I think they do pretty well at it. I don't agree with everything they say. I don't agree with all their conclusions. I may vote differently than they would vote. I'm not saying one way or another. I'm just saying I think that, frankly, they probably lean just a little bit left. I just want to be have. I want you to have a sense of of that. If you if you go by go by the book, I highly recommend it to you. And on our lead team and pastoral team, we've read the book and we've been sitting and discussing it. And some of the things, and of course our lead team and our uh, uh, pastoral team is as diverse as our church is. So it's an interesting thing when you discuss this kind of thing in a setting with a diversity of people. And uh, we've been discussing uh, politics. I, I want you to know, by the way, I know there's a unique connection, it feels like right now, to politics and racial division in our country as well. We've been sitting to de- together as a diverse group. We didn't put that discussion to rest a few months ago with the last sermon I did about it. We've been discussing it and and, and, and learning from each other and trying to figure out how to best lead our church in a, through the, the difficult times that we're in right now. So we've been sitting and discussing particularly this book and the issues that it raises. I'm just am going to read a couple of paragraphs from you to, to give someone a sense of how someone might approach the divide in a, in a scriptural way. Um, the football games don't start until you've got time. You've got plenty of time. So I'm going to read their words and I'm not going to read mine. Okay, and I'm going to try to read it in a a very balanced way. The gospel should be the foundation and starting point of our political decisions. Outside ideologies and philosophies can inform us, but they should never be the masters of our political action. It's a mistake to suggest that Christians should always come to the same political conclusions. However, all Christians should make those decisions from a biblical framework. Based on our life experiences, geographic region, or profession, we might honestly come to different conclusions on policy within the same general framework. That said, some positions are clearly outside. They name a lot of issues in in this book. I'm just just so ha- I'm going to mention the ones they they write uh, in a way that's concise. Uh, that said, some. Positions are clearly outside what's prescribed by the Bible. Christians clearly should not support solutions that undermine human dignity by, for example, unfairly discriminating, creating excessive criminal punishments, eroding religious liberty, undervaluing the lives of the unborn, and so on. Um, neither progressivism nor conservatism satisfies the love or truth imperatives of the gospel. Both fall outside of a biblical framework. When it comes to political ideology, to be conservative or progressive at all times on an every issue is not only to be intellectually lazy and easily manipulated, but it's also unfaithful. And then they offer a critique of pro- progressivism. They talk about positive things in progressivism from a scriptural perspective. And then they talk about things that are not in line with scripture in progressivism. And they get specific about both, the positive and the things that aren't aligned with Scripture. And then they do the same thing with conservatism. They talk about positive things about conservatism, and I'm not going to get into those things right now. And then they critique conservatism as to ways in which it doesn't really advance uh, the, the heart of God as conveyed in Scripture. And then I'll just close with this. They write, our identity shouldn't be tied up in either progressivism or conservatism. We shouldn't hesitate to correct either when necessary. When conservatism means preserving unjust systems and institutions, it must be opposed. When progressivism means moving from God's truth, it too must be opposed. I'd hope to spend a little bit more time on that today, but I'm now I'm setting the table for next week when I'm gonna give everybody an opportunity to be angry with me. Everybody is gonna have an opportunity to send me an email and say, barbarian. Let me close with this today. What is important to me right now? What's important to me right now is this. That you can be in deep Christian fellowship with a brother or sister who votes for someone differently than you do from a Christian perspective. As a pastor... That's my entire agenda right now. Okay? All right. Let me close with four suggestions to promote our unity in Christ. And just so you know, I know it's going to shock you. I've been preaching 50 minutes. And I've got about five more minutes. Okay? Looking at the clock, do we have enough time to get the next crowd in? I need to hurry. Oh boy, what happened? Here are four suggestions to promote our unity in Christ. The first is to remember that Jesus is king. When Paul used the, uses the word Christ in Colossians in the context of the Roman Empire, he was saying that Jesus was Israel's Messiah and the king of the world. This promoted uh, sinister intentions in the mind of Romans. He was saying, when, when Paul used the term Lord, he was using a term that was used often to describe Caesar. And he was saying, Jesus is Lord and Caesar is not. Now, this didn't mean that he didn't respect the authority of Caesar. In fact, it's clear that he did. He just knew that in the big picture of human history, Jesus was king forever and Jesus was Lord of the cosmos. It wasn't, as one commentator said, it wasn't an anti-imperial stance. It was a supra imperial stance, meaning it wasn't he was saying the Roman Empire is bad. That wasn't what the business that Paul was in, to be a critique of government. He was doing something bigger than that. He was, it wasn't saying the Roman Empire is bad and Caesar is bad, even though Caesar oftentimes was bad. He was saying Jesus is bigger than all of that. Listen, I am going to make an endorsement in this election. I endorse Jesus as king. And you know, you could, you could make a play on a well-known scripture. I endorse Jesus because Jesus first endorsed me. Here's the second thing. Vote Christianly. Harry Blameyer introduced the idea of the Christian mind which was able to think about secular issues from a Christian perspective. I encourage you, vote Christianly. I'll read something pretty provocative, I think, from Compassion and Conviction, the book that I've just read a little bit to you from. They they write, do an inventory of where you stand on issues like immigration, criminal justice, abortion, and sexual ethics, and then be honest about how you came to those conclusions. Did you reach your opinions through the love and truth of the Bible? Or have you been indoctrinated by a group identity that's outside of Christ? Try to pick at least one issue where you know many Christians disagree with you and commit to earnestly learning why they believe what they believe and consider it. The worst that can happen is that you will better understand your brothers and sisters who disagree with you. Think or vote Christianly. Third, act in humility. Compare the ubiquitous moral outrage on both sides. And I hear it, guys, from both sides in our congregation. I don't hear a lot of it, but I do. Both sides, outraged at some position or some characteristic of the other side and so on. Um, and there's reason for moral outrage. But compare moral outreach outrage to Philippians chapter 2 verse 3 where Paul said in humility value others above yourselves one of the most important things you can do in a relationship is to is, is to contemplate the possibility the other person is smarter than you are contemplate the possibility the other person may have a purer heart than you do this has been a big thing for me to learn in my life and frankly it's helped me a lot I, I try to think. You know what? It, I remember one time I had a had a, had a Christian brother who a, a pastor actually who who did something that I considered to be horrible to me, um, and I was angry and I was praying about it, and I found myself essentially praying against this guy, like God. You see what he did? Knock his teeth out. I use some of those Old Testament scriptures, and all of a sudden I felt the Holy Spirit speak to me, and that. You know, that voice that you hear inside and say, that guy's my son too. And I don't play favorites. And then I thought, how arrogant of me to think that God would take my side instead of his and perhaps there's a right and wrong in the situation but when it's all said and done like every good father he loves all his kids the same and if this guy messed up god's going to come and he's going to give an opportunity to repent who do here's the bottom line who do some of us think we are to think we're the only right one we should at least contemplate the possibility that someone else well during the civil war someone said to abraham lincoln Mr. President, we trust during this time of trial in which the nation is engaged that God is on our side and will give us victory. To which President Lincoln replied, Sir, my concern is not whether or not God is on our side. My greatest concern is to be on God's side, for God is always right. That's a Who could question the moral rightness of Abraham Lincoln's position in the Civil War? But yet he was humble enough to say, When I pray, I just keep trying to make sure I'm on God's side. Fourth, always promote unity. If you have a conversation with someone or about someone who's a brother or sister in Christ, would you just ask the question, especially if you disagree with them, which is perfectly fine to disagree. Am I promoting unity in the way I'm talking about this person to this person? Or what about the way that, so uh, again, I use the term uh, ubiquitous, I've been using the term ubiquitous ubiquitously today. Social media is so ubiquitous. When you post on social media, I mean, you have a right to post about your political views. Who am I to say that you should? But can you do it in a way? That values the other above yourself can you do it in a way where you think I'm gonna say what I'm saying without a? Say- you know what a lot of social media posts basically say don't you barbarians I mean I saw somebody frankly in our congregation here a couple weeks ago a social media post that basically if you really cut it was a political thing if you really cut to the chase it basically said if you don't believe what I believe about this you are stupid and worse you are immoral listen guys There is no place for that in the body of Christ. We can find a way to express our views in a way that honors the other as a child of God and someone worthy of respect and dignity and where we promote the unity of the church. And I am so grateful that that has been our story for 29 years, and I expect it will continue to be...